0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Francine Prose, a novelist, essayist, critic, and short story writer. She is the author of 21 works of fiction, including Blue Angel, which was a finalist for the National Book Award, and Mr. Monkey, her most recent novel. Prose has also written five books of nonfiction, which include two essay collections on writing, Reading Like a Writer, and the just-released What to Read and Why, which is a collection of essays and reviews that pay homage to the writers she admires. In What to Read and Why, Prose considers why the works of literary masters like George Eliot and Charles Dickens and Mary Shelley have endured throughout time, She also investigates what art is and means, what makes a short story, and how translation impacts a reader, as well as other musings on authors she loves and returns to. We began the discussion talking about how she amassed the essays and What to Read and Why, and how she chose the title.
1: One of the frustrations of reading like a writer was that that when I would go on tour for it or talk to people about it, and they would always say, well, what should I read? And part of the problem is, you know, whenever, I mean, you've probably had this experience, whenever anyone asks you what to read, all the books you've ever read just like spiral down the drain in your brain and you just can't think of a single book. So with reading like a writer, I would say, well, there's this list at the back. There's this bibliography, books to be read immediately, 118 books. You could start there, blah, blah. But but a list isn't much help. I mean, that is, you can look at a list and not figure out why you might want to read something on the list so uh so I took I decided that I I thought well I'll write these longer pieces about books that I particularly love and then I thought well actually they've already been written I wrote these longer pieces about books I love and 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 the temptation I mean in the essay about Roberto Bolaño's 2666 I talk about you know, reaching a certain point in the book and wanting to call up everybody, you know, and say, you have to read this book immediately. So, uh, so I took all the essays that were not just positive, but enthusiastic about books that I really loved and decided to put them together. I mean, there were a lot of negative reviews, of course, that I just left out. I mean, fewer and fewer as I got older. I mean, it's easy to do that sort of thing when you're young and you don't realize what you're doing, but, uh, But I just took the ones that I felt, the books that I felt most passionate about. I mean, plus, it was always such a pleasure for me when some editor would say, we're reissuing Great Expectations or Middlemarch or New Grub Street in a new edition and Frankenstein. Would you like to do uh, a new uh, introduction? And then it was just pure bliss because I could reread the book and also find out certain amounts of biographical information and, and textual information that either I never knew or I knew and forgot and put that all together in, in an essay. And then those are the, those are the um, essays that are collected in the book. You know, I wish it could have been called reading like a writer too, because, uh, because I think that there are things that writers and readers can actually learn from these essays about the process of writing and reading, that they're not just about the books themselves, but they're about how books get put together and how, again, how we can learn from what we're reading in in our lives as human beings, as readers, as writers, and so forth, And and I just, you know, I can't emphasize that enough.
0: So one of the things you talk about in an early essay, I think it's the essay about Mary Shelley, was talking about you know, what What we get out of reading. And and I was left sort of wondering, do we read for moral questions? Like, are we seeking that with what we read?
1: <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that, because I've been thinking about that almost nonstop all summer, because, you know, I teach at Bard College in the fall. And, and it's a great, it's a literature class, and it's a wonderful class, because they kind of let me do what I want. And and this, the kind of theme of this fall's class is really about, it's about sympathy and about, I mean, because it's occurred to me, as probably occurred to a lot of people that, that the capacity for sympathy seems to be kind of atrophying in our country, or it's being encouraged to atrophy. Uh, and, and so then the question comes, well, can a book make you more sympathetic? Can a novel make you more sympathetic? So I picked novels, I mean, from Thomas Bernhardt and Richard Hughes and, and uh, uh, well, Great Expectations. I mean, a number of books in which which deal with characters who are apparently unsympathetic. And then the question is, because not a novel or a work of fiction is, I think, the only thing left that can really put you in the mind of another human being. I mean, even if you're watching a film, you're watching it. But when you're reading a novel, that character or the voice of that character actually gets in your head in a way that, that nothing else does. And you have to imagine what the character looks like, and you have to bring your own mind and your own imagination to bear on putting that character together. I mean, in a way you're, and you're kind of an active participant in that process in a way that you're not, if you're just watching a film or TV. So, uh, so I picked all these books, Wiseblood, Flannery O'Connor, uh, with these characters who are complicated, let's say, who are not villains necessarily, but who are complicated. And then I, one of the things I want to talk about with my class is, uh, Well, what does that do? If you're able to sympathize with someone that you had first imagined or assumed was unsympathetic, how does that affect you? I mean, my own feeling, to be perfectly honest, is is that it actually works, but it doesn't last very long. I mean, that is, you know, whenever I read a Chekhov story, I think, oh, my God, the world is full of these people and they have their lives and their hearts and their hearts are broken and they've all had their moms and dads and blah, blah, blah. And and I go out and I look at the world in a new way, but it doesn't take much to make it wear off. So I don't. <laughs> so I'm not sure if it's a permanent change that's been affected, but uh, but I do think it, it just is a purely mental exercise. It's fantastic, and there's nothing else like it.
0: And when you start writing, because you've written so much fiction, do you have that idea in mind of sort of? empathy or sympathy versus entertainment, or is that too much to even think about when you start writing a novel?
1: (laughs) I have nothing in mind. I really have nothing in mind. I have one sentence maybe, or, or a little bit of a plot or an experience or a fragment of experience. I mean, I, I, you know I mean, I have said this. So when I started writing Mr. Monkey, my most recent novel, all i knew was that i had taken my granddaughter who was about 6 at the time to see this painfully terrible off off broadway play and and the actors were they kept forgetting their lines and the lighting director couldn't find them with the spotlight and her costumes were falling apart and my granddaughter knew it and at some point in the play she what she thought was a very noisy moment she said are you interested in this and it was a quiet moment and everyone in the theater heard it and I said yes and then I had to go home and write the novel because it was true to make it true so that's how that started so it didn't start with any idea about whether it was going to be entertaining or whether it was going to be uh, improving or anything like that I mean all it started with was like this little fragment of an experience that had happened to me and trying to reconstruct it and also in that case trying to sort of turn that experience around and around and around again to see what it would have looked like from the point of view of the actors, from the point of view of other people in the audience, and so on and so on. So they just, they all start differently. I mean, every single one comes from a different place. You know, something, you know, Henry James is always saying in his diaries, journals, that he went to a dinner party and someone told him a story about a governess and he went home and wrote Turn of the Screw, you know, I mean, every time I read something like that, I think, (laughs) I think Andrew James went to better dinner parties than I did because it doesn't happen that often, but you know, I'll see something on the subway in New York City or, or something like that will happen and it will just start my imagination going and, and maybe 10 years later, I mean, in a way, the things I find myself writing about are things that happened a while before and for whatever reason, I can't get them out of my mind. The publishing industry is a system.
0: Books are mirrors into people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, we'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She wasn't pretty much a stratosphere all around.
1: The term is academic
0: fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't world-proof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. To your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, priceline. Well, one of the things I really appreciated, and I saw it more in the early essays, but not exclusively, was how much people's real lives and circumstances come into their fiction, even when their fiction was maybe about monsters like Frankenstein or um or things that seem out of the ordinary, but like with Shelley and Dickens, you see reverberations of their real lives. And when you pick up a book to read it, generally, you know nothing about the author's life, what, you know, no matter what. And so I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about this intersection of, you know, the books that you were writing about, and the real lives of these writers
1: yeah well uh again i've been thinking all summer about Charles Dickens because I am going to teach great expectations, and then i'm going to teach for a month in the prison in the Eastern uh, correctional facility, and i 'm going to teach great expectations and and One of the reasons I want to is you know Charles Dickens spent a considerable part of his childhood in prison because his father had been put into the Marshalsea debtors' prison for debt, and at that point in London. Um, if your family couldn't survive without you on the outside, they could rent or have a little room in the prison. So he lived in the prison with his family. And then he had, he got a job working in a factory that made uh shoe polish and his job because he was cute. He was like a cute kid. They put him in the window of the factory and he was supposed to fill the bottles with the shoe polish and people would come by and look at him. And rich children would come by, you know, eating their treats and watch this penniless child. And that trauma, he never got over. I mean, he never got over. And, and yet it was the thing that informed his work. I mean, all through his work, Great Expectations and Little Dorrit and so forth, there are these scenes in which uh, someone who's been very poor suddenly gets money, which is what happened to Dickens by the time he was 30 he was Charles Dickens. I mean, he became a court reporter as a young man and he could take shorthand and his job. I mean, again, speaking of things in your life that turn out to be very useful, he had to write down everything that everyone said in the court. So, uh, so he learned to pay attention in that way that you have to pay attention to be a writer. And, uh, and then he became Charles Dickens. But, but you know, there's a scene in Little Dorrit where Little Dorrit, who's been in the same Marshall State prison where Dickens was, inherits a bunch of mysterious money. And she's on her way, I think, to Italy, I think. And she's in the carriage. And she's reflecting on the weirdness of being poor and then being rich. And you know it's Dickens. I mean, if you know about Dickens, you know it's Dickens. But if you don't, you just think, what a great scene i guess but but everything he wrote was so was so informed by by his childhood and his experience, even though if you didn't know anything about him, you wouldn't necessarily know that
0: you know you were talking about earlier about sympathy, and you have something that you wrote in in your essay about cousin bet that I really loved it's it's towards the very end, and you're talking about. That today, critics make sure that the novelist understands the importance of creating characters the readers can sympathize with and identify with. And that the book-buying public insists upon plots in which obstacles are overcome and hardships prove instructive and, and goodness and kindness are rec- recognized. But then you were talking about the the sort of nerviness of, of Balzac in Cousin Bet. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about this idea that you were writing about.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, I've been thinking about it a lot because, you know, I tend to have a mixed bag of characters. But, I, but you know, I, I, I mean, one thing I say to my students, I mean, by the way, I don't teach writing anymore. I, I, it's a literature class. But one thing I say to my students, and, and at first they think I'm joking, and I'm kind of joking, but in a way I'm not, is that if they use the word relatable, I'm going to fail them for this semester. I mean, I think that word is poisonous to literature. Uh, it's toxic because, because our job is not to relate to the characters, to, to relate their experience to our experience, or necessarily to sympathize with them. I mean, there are people you can't sympathize with. You can't sympathize with, I don't know, Iago, for example. It's pretty hard to sympathize with Olin Desimona. For what? Jealousy? Not really that attractive. Equality. So, um, and you know, Balzac is full of people just—I mean, Cousin Bette, for example, just scheming and trashing each other, often about money, about inheritances, not displaying the noblest qualities of human nature. And, but he, but, but the thing is, those things exist. There are people like that. So, are we going to say they're completely off the charts? As subjects for literature. We can't write about them. We can't acknowledge that these things exist in the world. We have to pretend that virtue is rewarded and vice is punished and people act from the best motives. Well, that would just be a flat out lie about the world. I mean, one thing that's interesting to me and has been lately is how people are willing to give uh, the protagonists of TV series A kind of flack that they won't in novels. I mean, for example, Breaking Bad or The Wire or The Sopranos all have heroes who are pretty bad. I mean, they're murderers, let's just say, or you know, meth cookers or whatever they do. And I think I would, I can't think of a contemporary of a popular contemporary novel which has a hero like that that people would be willing to accept. So why is it okay on TV, and yet people expect novels to be uplifting in some way? I don't know. I mean, I don't have an answer for that, but it's just something that's been occurring to me as a big TV watcher in addition to a reader.
0: Well, I think also, you know, when you're talking about, you know, people want to see change at the end or they want to see good, rewarded And um, in, in their literature, they want they want they read it, you know, a lot, not even necessarily for the happy ending, but for some kind of change. When you were writing about Mavis Gallant, she you were saying that she doesn't pretend that even tragic experience changes or improves us in her in her stories and and I just love that idea because I think when you when a lot of people sit down to write or read you you start and you see the character at a and you want to see them get to z but that's not realistic always in life we can have lots of horrible things that happen to us and, and we don't change a bit
1: I know unfortunately I know well and also the questions of endings I mean no one knows what happened to Tony Soprano at the end of that final season finale of the last episode. I mean, it faded to black and then a certain amount of discussion. But no one went back and said, you know, I really just decided I hate The Sopranos because of the way it ended. Whereas with novels, I mean, I wrote, I've written a couple of YA novels, and, and one of them uh, is called After, and it's about a high school that turns into a police state basically after a shooting. And I, I wrote it right after nine eleven because uh, you know, suddenly there were metal detectors. I mean, the world changed as we all know, but but and John Ashcroft was our whatever he was. And I wrote and it had a kind of indeterminate ending. I mean, and I wasn't planning a sequel. It just ended at a certain point where the characters weren't quite sure what their ultimate fates were gonna be. So then I started getting these letters from eighth graders saying oh, I really liked your novel except for the ending. Oh, is there going to be a sequel? Oh, and I get it, you know, they were eighth graders. But I was kind of shocked, A, that, you know, now in the eighth grade, it's okay to write to writers and tell them you don't like how their novel ends. And B, that that craving for the the definitive ending started so early and was apparently being encouraged.
0: I like that so many women published really good books in the 1800s.
1: Well, yeah. Although George Eliot had to be named George, and um, George Sand had to be named George, and the Brontes wrote under men's names. So it you know, it wasn't that easy. But they were still doing it. I mean, they were still going out there and doing it. Oh, Louisa Mayalka certainly wrote under Louisa Mayalca. So, uh, you know, there was of course they were still doing it. I mean, it was harder then, and I still think it's harder now, But uh, despite everything. But why would we not do it?
0: Why do you think it's harder now, still?
1: Because I think that the prejudice against women and women's fiction and women writers has not gone away, despite all of our efforts to make sure. I mean, you know, there's that organization, VITA, that's still counts the you know, this still keeps track of the attention paid to women's novels versus male men's novels. And it's still not there's still not, nothing close to parody. I mean years ago, I can't even remember, like maybe two thousand, like a long time ago, I wrote this essay called Scent of a Woman's Ink. And because I'd noticed, as many people had, that if you pick up a journal or book review or so forth and so on, there are many more articles by men about men than by women. So, And this was for Harper's. And my then editor at Harper's, Barbara Jones, assigned an intern to, uh, to go out and actually track down these statistics, which were much worse than anyone thought. I mean, much worse than I had suspected. I mean, really appalling. I think they've gotten better. But, you know, Pulitzers that were given out and review coverage and blah, 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 blah. So so then um, I found, first of all, I found all these writers, male writers from the 50s and early 60s, I guess, before they figured out that it was not okay to say these things. I mean, the the title of the essay, Scent of a Woman's Ink, comes from this Norman Mailer essay in which he says, um, I can always sniff out the ink of a woman. And he says, because women are domestic, sentimental, humorless, you know, blah, blah, blah. He comes up with this long list of of faults and lacks that women have. So, and then in the same essay, I played a little game where I took two quotes on similar subjects from novels and short stories, one by man, one by woman, without attributing them at first. And in every case, the passage from the male writer was domestic humorous, and sentimental as opposed to the passage from the female writer well the essay came out and i thought everyone is just going to thank me for pointing out this thing that everyone has always known but no one is a, and it was like a, it was like i'd thrown a bomb into the culture i mean now it's sort of okay to say these things even though people don't particularly notice anymore but But, uh, you know, Jonathan Yardley denounced me in the Washington Post and people were extremely upset. So, you know, and eventually it died down, but I spent the next couple months uh, on radio talk shows trying to defend what I'd said um, because, uh, you know, uh, because people were so outraged by it.
0: Is there any advice that you would have for people... Who aren't necessarily big readers but want to get more out of the books they read?
1: Well, again, it depends on what they're reading. I mean, I think if you're reading, I think it's useful to ask yourself, what's the writer saying? And to, you know, one of the things reading like a writer says is just slow down, just read every sentence. I mean, one of the things I've noticed lately, and this is, it's not about writing fiction, but it's about. You know, I I was not so much anymore, but I've been doing a lot of uh, political writing. I w- I was writing for the Guardian a lot, and and one of the things I began to notice was that people seemed to me to just read the headline and immediately start typing their response, for the comments, you know, for the comment section, and often, I mean, it really had anything to do with me, but often the writer of the comment would criticize. Me, the writer, for not saying something which I said in the piece, so it was it became clear. And they weren't very long pieces; they were like a thousand words. You know, they weren't like big novels. So it was clear to me that the that something was keeping the reader from actually reading what was there. So, so the advice I would say I would give would be just like try and read what's there. And also, you know, going back to something we talked about earlier, don't expect everything to be rosy and positive and life affirming in what you read, because, because you know perfectly well that life isn't like that.
0: Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer?
1: Well, since we've been talking about Mavis Gallant, I'll read the, the end of my favorite Mavis Gallant story, which is the ice wagon going down the street. And it's to me, I mean, one of the reasons that I love it is it, I think it's one of the most beautiful endings in literature. And, um, and the story's about this guy named Peter, who's been a clerk in Geneva, and he's back in Toronto with his wife. And he remembers this co-worker named Agnes Brousson, who he worked with in Geneva. And he and Agnes had a kind of... It was a kind of mysterious love affair, although nothing ever happened between them. They just had one conversation in which they were more honest with each other than they'd ever been with other human beings in their entire lives. So this is the ending. Um, When on Sunday mornings, Sheila and Peter talk about those times, they take on the glamour of something still to come. It is then he remembers Agnes Burson. He never says her name. Sheila wouldn't remember Agnes. Agnes is the only secret Peter has from his wife, the only puzzle he pieces together without her help. He thinks about families in the West as they were 15, 20 years ago, the iron-cold ambition, and every member pushing the next one on. He thinks of his father's parties. When he thinks of his father, he imagines him with Sheila in a crowd. Actually, Sheila and Peter's father never met, but they might have liked each other. His father admired good-looking women. Peter wonders what they were doing over there in Geneva, not Sheila and Peter, Agnes and Peter. It is almost as if they'd once run away together, silly as children, irresponsible as lovers. Peter and Sheila are back where they started. While they were out in world affairs, picking up microbes and debts, always on the fringe of disaster, the fringe of fortune, Agnes went on and did what? They lost each other. He thinks of the ice wagon going down the street. He sees something he's never seen in his life, a western town that belongs to Agnes. Here's Agnes, small, mole-faced, round-shouldered because she's always carried a younger child. She watches the ice wagon and the trail of ice water in a morning invented for her, hers. He sees the weak prairie trees and the shadows on the sidewalk. Nothing moves except the shadows and the ice wagon and the changing amber of the child's eyes. The child is Peter. He has seen the grain of the cement sidewalk and the grass and the cracks and the dust and the dandelions at the edge of the road. He is there. He has taken the morning that belongs to Agnes. He is up before the others and inhales everything. There is nothing he doesn't know. He could keep the morning if he wanted to, but what can Peter do with the start of the summer day? Sheila's here. It is a true Sunday morning with the dimness and headache and remorse and regrets, and this is life. He says, we have the Balenciaga. He touches Sheila's hand. The children have their aunt now, and he and Sheila have each other. Everything works out somehow or other. Let Agnes have the start of the day. Let Agnes think it was invented for her. Who wants to be alone in the universe? No. Begin at the beginning. Peter lost Agnes. Agnes says to herself somewhere, Peter is lost.
0: Do you want to say anything else about that? It's beautiful. That's all. (laughs)
1: <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. And every time I read it, I just feel sort of choked up. It's so beautiful. I mean, you know, the story is, you know, so much about longing and regret. And, and also, you know, one of the things I say to my students is, is these stories, I mean, Mavis Gallant's stories or anyone else's stories that you really think, you know, what makes something not trivial is the feeling that this is someone's entire life, which could never be trivial, an entire life. It's not trivial. I mean, if you're writing about like a dating mishap, mm, possibility next week someone goes out on a better date and is happy forever and ever. But if you're writing about someone's entire life, that's a, a human life. And it has a kind of weight and power that uh, is miraculous and important. And, and someone has gotten it down on the page. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Does Monday at
0: the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com
1: slash AI for all.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: Okay, this is the story I'm working on now. And uh, and they're, they're all stories that are inspired by art art pieces of one sort or of another. So there's so, and I'm, and I'm using the term art fairly broadly. So, so this story is about this kind of a famous uh, series of photographs that were taken, I think of the 1920s and um, of fairies of like fairies, you know, little winged fairies in a garden with little girls and, and years later. And so, and when the series and when these photos were, um, when these photos first came out, or, and, and Arthur Conan Doyle was involved, I and mean, it was a long story. But anyway, there was a big debate about uh, whether these photos were real or not, whether these were actual fairies in the garden, or whether these children had somehow faked this photograph for reasons of their own, blah, blah, blah. So, um, so I decided that this was going to be one of the art pieces of these photographs that I wrote about. Um, So this is the beginning of the story, which I rewrote and rewrote and rewrote. Um, Almost 80 years after the fact, I've decided to tell the truth. There were never any fairies living in our garden. Perhaps the only reason I'm coming forward now is because I'm well past 90 and my doctors have made an an unencouraging guess about the probable length of my future. I don't believe in the afterlife or the final judgment, yet something in me recoils from the thought of secrets hoarded beyond the grave. Perhaps no one remembers our story or cares, possibly those who do will have long ago figured it out for themselves, a general lack of interest, a merciful forgetting, or other possibilities that don't concern me. Everyone has a permanent record, so to speak, a unique personal debt that can only be settled by the heartfelt confession, the clean breast, the plausible explanation, even without the expected, the required plea for understanding and forgiveness." A lifetime after a bubble blew up around me and my sisters, a peculiar bubble of fame that, against all odds, failed to shiver and pop, I would like to say that my sister Agnes and I faked a photograph of two fairies dancing on my finger. We did it because our sister Evelina wanted to believe that a flock of tiny winged creatures had spent a summer afternoon playing hide-and-seek in the bells of the foxgloves along the stream behind our home. This was July 1937, 1937. In Pittsfield, Massachusetts.
0: Tell me why you that chose That the this.
1: hard part. Because I rewrote it about a thousand times. I just couldn't get it right. I couldn't get the language right. I couldn't get the sensibility right. I couldn't get the way I wanted my narrator to sound right. So I, so I wrote it, and then I just fiddled with it and fiddled with it and fiddled with it until I finally got it the way I wanted it, and then I could go on. But that's why, um, that's why I chose it, because it was such a pain. Where do you write you know, I live mostly in the country now and I have this, I have a study that's so shamefully beautiful. I mean, you know, I'm an older person now, so I feel that I've kind of earned the right to have it, but it has windows on three sides. has very, very high ceilings. It looks out. There's an apple tree that I can see from my window that takes up pretty much all the back windows and it's beautiful in every season of the year. I mean, when it's in blossom, it's just off the charts. So, uh, so that's where I write. There are bookcases on one side. When I first had this room built, I didn't, I didn't want books in the bookcases. I was saying like books are so noisy, you know, they just call out to you. But then I couldn't, you know, my house is full. Of, I have like, I don't know if books count as hoarding, but I have rooms and rooms and rooms. I, I have no idea how many thousands of books I have in my house, but, but I do. And then on the other wall. I have these two dollhouses. I have grandchildren now, and I found on eBay, actually, the dollhouses that I had. They're these pressed tin dollhouses that I had in my childhood. So I have this kind of collection of old dollhouses that the kids play with. Um, So one wall books, the other wall dollhouses.
0: And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I'm a fanatical gardener. In the summer, I mean, you know, it's seasonal here. I live in the Northeast, but in the summer... I'm usually in the garden like two or three hours a day. We have a flower and vegetable garden. And um, my husband's a cook, a great cook. So we have a kind of, excuse the expression, farm-to-table situation here. And, uh, and I, it's incredibly satisfying. It's also kind of a workout, so I don't have to go to the gym. And it gives me great pleasure. In the winter, I don't know. I don't know what I do. I read, of course. I, you know, and also now that I have grandchildren, I hang out with them. That's fun.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: Oh, my husband, for sure. Poor thing. I mean, he. you know, sometimes like we'll be in bed drinking coffee in the morning and I'll say, oh, I, ha- I have something I need for you to read. And then he'll just hear the printer going and going and going and going and going. And he knows that he'll be busy till like 11 in the morning. Uh, and he's a great reader. He's a great reader. I mean, we've been married for forty years, so so he knows what to say and what not to say. But he's a painter, and and he has a a he has a great visual sense. So if things don't make sense visually, he'll tell me. And also, he's just you know he's one of these people. If he hadn't been a painter, he could be one of these continuity guys in, who work in film. Where you know they go like, the character was wearing a wristwatch in the first scene and not in the second scene. You know, so he's very alert to things. That don't make sense. Things are left out. Things that are illogical, and and he's fantastic for pointing out those things that I might not have noticed. I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. How have you dealt with rejection? Badly. Well, you know, I you know, I it's painful, and I don't think it gets to be less painful. It it's just difficult. I mean, you know, and the fact what what a, I mean, the fact that. Um, that you've gotten over it in the past, that one has gotten over in the past, presumably should help, you know, like, oh, this was, I thought this was the most terrible thing that ever happened. And now I can't even remember what it was and blah, blah, blah. Uh, It should help, but it it really doesn't. I mean, it depends, you know, and again, it depends who's doing the rejecting. I mean, there's certain now I think there's certain things that are more likely to just make me angry than, and to cause pain uh for various reasons, often political and um and and that's easier i mean anger's easy to, easier than grief i think
0: and what is your favorite
1: word <laughs> i you know I like words with with plosives in them, so I like cucumber and pumpkin and words like that i mean uh, for a while i mean they're words that my kids used in place of the real words They always seemed to be better than the real world words i mean that is they didn't they couldn't learn the real words or they made up words you know and most of them i have forgotten but one of my sons kept referring to lobsters as clobsters. and i still remember that because it seems like such a better description of what a lobster is than lobster so that that's up that's right up there
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Francine Prose, author of 21 novels and five books of nonfiction, including her most recent, What to Read and Why. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.